Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. In the future we may deploy armies of cybernetic superhumans to fight all battles, people were so augmented they could tear through walls or dodge bullets. But would these invincible warriors be willing to fight for mundane humans, or merely fight each other to rule us? Hamza was born on the planet of New Damascus. He doesn't remember the city of his birth because it was vaporized in an atomic blast when he was two. He grew up in a refugee camp with half a dozen different cultures mishmashed together, but his grandmother told him his name meant powerful. He certainly never felt powerful, not with half a dozen defects and illnesses that left him both a cripple as a boy and a social reject, one picked on by everyone else and valued by no one. The doctor who visits their camp every week told him he would have been easily cured if he lived back in civilized space, but to Hamza, that's little consolation. When Hamza turned 18 years standard, he joined the Martian Foreign Legion. They didn't have to talk him into cybernetic augmentation, indeed he spent most of his salary on extra components, upgrades, and bootlegs. That club foot he had is gone. So those worthless lungs he had that always coughed up blood and phlegm from the harsh radioactive dust storms of New Damascus, where the regolith is like ground-up glass. Hamza can see a hummingbird's wings flap a thousand meters away now, seeing frequencies his old eyes couldn't, and hear a pin drop in a crowded room. He's as tough as steel now, tougher, he can bend steel rods in his hands. He's powerful, at last. He doesn't know fear anymore either, not with his endocrine system properly regulated. Plus, he carries a gun that's bigger than most people are into battle. What in the galaxy would he have to be afraid of? It isn't hard to see the attraction of cybernetics to healthy people, let alone those suffering with ailments or living with disabilities, and that can include feeling weak and afraid. Like our example of Hamza, born in a refugee camp and feeling like a discard of a vastly more powerful civilization, Talking about the role of cyborgs in the future, especially in a military capacity, it's worth remembering that the line between necessary prosthetics and personal augmentation or enhancement can be blurry. It isn't hard at all to imagine why generals would like cybernetically enhanced troops, or why those troops might gladly embrace them. Nor is it hard to imagine why many might embrace cybernetic enhancements on alien worlds. Indeed, the original use of the term cyborg, short for cybernetic organism, was in the context of chemical or mechanical alteration of people to better let them adapt to extraterrestrial conditions like lower gravity or pressure, or even just sleep aids for irregular day-night cycles. The original meaning rapidly gave way to the more sci-fi and comic book flavor of a guy with a big steel arm or leg, as opposed to more subtle or biochemical approaches to cybernetics. Our introductory character for today, Hamza, is basically a prime target for all those enticements to go cyborg. He's physically impaled, he lives in an environment humans aren't adapted to, he benefits in his job, which is inherently dangerous, and thus makes every augmentation decision life or death. And he is not happy with his current body. He feels weak, frail, outcast, and a victim. He's joining an organization and getting augmentations to end that. 
We could comment on how psychologically healthy or ethical his chosen path is, but that's not our topic today. This is Sci-Fi Sunday here on SFIA, where we examine the realism of concepts in science fiction and ask how plausible they are or how we could make something like them plausible, and the idea of a cyborg soldier is about as well known a sci-fi concept as you can get. One thing missing for a lot of those stories though is the large number of cyborgs in them, full-on cyborg armies, not one lone super trooper or commando squad. We want to contemplate whole armies, and that means not just looking at shock troops, but what the cyborg crewmen of a spaceship might look like, or a fighter pilot, or even just the supply sergeant, mechanic, or quartermaster. Nor do we just intend to discuss unsubtle physical enhancement, like being able to punch through a wall or be bulletproof, or simple computerization options like adding a heads-up display to someone's vision. Many things like that might be accomplished with a pair of goggles or some power-armored exoskeleton, and it is worth remembering that many of these options might not require lopping limbs off, when adding some exoskeleton might not necessarily be a very bulky or cumbersome option. So too, whenever we talk about implants and prosthetics, especially ones meant for gross physical enhancement, there's that question of what is powering everything. Even our most sophisticated batteries not yet available for commercial use are no match for a gas engine in terms of energy density, even if they avoid power loss from idling, and indeed are even less power dense than biological fat cells, our own best energy storage option. There is no guarantee we are ever going to get any sort of power storage option much better than what we already have either. Even nuclear options are way short of what we want for most comic book-esque cyborg applications, as a radioisotope thermal generator may be way more energy dense than any battery or chemical fuel but produces a constant power supply at all times. That said, plutonium-238 generates about 260 watts per pound, or 570 watts per kilogram, and that's almost 20 times denser than water, or the human body, so you can pack a lot of power generation in that way. Unfortunately that's mostly heat, especially given the low efficiency of RTGs in producing electricity, but with a half-life of 88 years, a single kilogram of it represents a pretty good power supply, as even 88 years later it would still be producing half the power it originally did, and a quarter of that 176 years later. Needless to say, even if 10% conversion to electricity was the best you could do, it would be no problem to pack a kilowatt of generator into someone, it wouldn't even take up a liter worth of space. It would kill them dead real quick to be fair, and not from radiation. Plutonium's an alpha middle when it comes to decay, you can block that with a thin layer of tinfoil, and even direct exposure to a human isn't really penetrating skin. Putting inside someone is a different story, but that's what shooting is for and not much is needed. Instead your problem is that your cyborg is going to catch on fire as that 20 kilograms of plutonium is giving you off over 10,000 watts of heat. That's around 100 times what your body normally radiates. You can go a lot higher than that, you can potentially burn 1,000 calories an hour for instance, which releases almost 1,200 watts of heat. You aren't going much higher than that without serious alterations with radiators, like a car engine has. We might imagine a cybernetic arm or leg as being a tough metal coating with lots of blood vessels like radiators in it, which has a bone made of plutonium, it's a pretty hard metal, and the rest of your arm is your hydraulic or artificial muscle and a lot of batteries. Your RTG mostly powers them up for brief moments of high exhaustion and then otherwise just being a bit higher power from moment to moment than a typical human. If you don't feel obliged to keep to average human height and weight, you go for the big bulky look, then you can absolutely run a power plant in that person, 
allowing them to keep a modestly superhuman pace of exhaustion going all day while having plenty of battery for moments like when they need to flip a car over. One thing to note here is that this isn't really much better than a power armor suit would offer, since we could easily pack that plutonium into a nice thick exoskeleton and have that same sort of radiating room, it's not hard to imagine the armor plating being batteries, especially given that super strong materials like the carbon allotrope, graphene, are the materials we tend to contemplate for ultra high performance batteries. We can economically grow diamond these days too, including diamond made from carbon-14, what we call a diamond battery. Carbon-14 diamond batteries decay as beta radiation, which is comprised of electrons and positrons, and thus can produce electric current directly. Beta voltaics aren't new, the Mosley generator is 110 years old, and I'd imagine many of them are still running, as it's a durable and long-lived approach to power. Carbon-14 has a much lower power level and energy density than plutonium, but as we just saw, we don't need plutonium power levels here, some with a carbon-14 diamond skeleton or diamond exoskeleton or armor, say 100 kilograms of it, would have a theoretical maximum of 130 watts of power production, and be hard as diamond. There's no hard limit either, carbon-14 has a half-life of several thousand years, compared to tritium, another beta-decay isotope, at around a dozen. Loosely speaking, your half-life is inversely related to your power production for an isotope, the longer it lives, the slower it releases that power. Beta decay is usually going to be weaker, pound for pound, than alpha decay. Key notion though is that we can go atomic for cybernetics. Otherwise you need an active power connection, that might be a mobile armor generator following you around, or given the durability of something like diamond or plutonium, I could imagine folks having a big old shield, medieval knight style, one that was also a power supply. We can go the other way and have people eat food and convert that into electricity, or adapt our normal internal power process to run cybernetics off of sugars. We could also charge batteries off something like a cap or cloak made out of flexible solar panels. The big issue though is that none of these options offer the mobile energy density that atomic sources do, but those cannot be throttled, they always run at full speed. A classic fission reactor can't be made that small, though we could conceive something running on vastly superior materials and transuranic elements being possible, that would then offer a power supply that could be throttled, though probably not ultra quickly but batteries used in tandem with that could allow rapid surges in power while the reactor throttled up, something akin to an adrenaline rush. This avoids the continuous stable power supply issue, RTGs or anything else running on decay represent. Hypothetically, someone might also find a way to play with decay rates using thus far unknown physics. It seems unlikely you would ever get something like fusion working at such a tiny scale, especially at high power without cooking the individual. We have the option of antimatter, but I think folks would flinch back from having a power source that, if damaged, would detonate and release its full power, a human's daily food supply if converted into an explosive of the same energy would be the equivalent of around 2 kilograms of TNT or about 10 hand grenades, so it might be viable if you were willing to limit your fuel supply in your cyborg to something like one day or even less, while giving them other less power dense options for maintaining basic functions. People need to eat regularly, a resupply run for cyborg armies remains an option, as at a minimum it's no harder to resupply them than regular human troops, and probably a lot easier. 
Something like a micro black hole is off the table too, as Hawking radiation for any black hole that masked 100 kilograms is almost identical to the entire power output of our Sun, and lasts for 47 nanoseconds. So it's basically a 2000 megaton nuclear bomb detonation, not a power source. We could imagine some almost perfectly reflective substance shielding it and bouncing the emissions back inside to keep it from blowing up, which you could adaptively change the reflectivity on to dial up how much energy escaped, but we would be talking about wanting kilowatts of power, or maybe nanosecond long pulses of gigawatts for a weapon of some sort, and so we would be talking about a substance that ranged from 99.9999999999% reflectivity to 99.9999999999999999% reflectivity. We might hypothesize someone's power supply consisting of a few hundred different nanoscopic micro-black holes, massing mirror nanograms, needing even higher reflectivity and precision control for that to be viable, and lowers the explosive yield down to something saner, a microgram of mass converted to energy is 200 kilograms of TNT, in the very large artillery shell or car bomb territory. I should note that both in this and the antimatter case, you're probably using these as your weapon munitions too. That power supply and how big it goes boom, and how likely it is to do so in combat conditions, also controls how big your combat units are and how close they can be. You might be limited to one-man armies or small squads with some technologies, as opposed to deploying entire battalions into relatively small areas. Even outside of combat situations, since someone might intentionally detonate one and blow up their neighbors in some horrible domino effect, so too you might see weapons which were designed specifically to set off an enemy's cybernetic power supplies, like a magnetic disruption round, to wreck magnetic confinement of antimatter and set it off. How viable a given power supply is for usage is going to depend on its reliability and resistance in these sorts of situations, not just its raw output. I should also note that rupturing high-density batteries isn't entirely safe either, though certainly less pyrotechnic or radioactive than other options. We would also imagine the cyborg squad as coming in on a troop transport, tracked, wheeled, copped, or whatever, and all have a plug-in cable to that thing's engine and even maybe a coolant tube to its radiators, and enough battery capacity to allow plenty of time to reconnect, which can include a reconnect by the vehicle shooting a magnetic grapple onto their power port or coolant port in under a second and having hundreds of backup wires, allowing them to maintain a ridiculously high battle tempo practically indefinitely, even if the enemy is trying to take those wires and hoses out. That's a pretty terrifying notion, some rapid assault dropship deploying a dozen cyborg super soldiers, as we discussed in our dropship episode a couple weeks back, cyborgs might potentially have liquid breathing options and be able to handle insane g-forces. In the end, the battery option is your best one, as it is going to be present in any design I think, but always in tandem with one or more other power supplies. You give options for multiple paths for charging, some internal atomic sources perhaps, some solar panels built into clothing, a port for plugging into a wall or generator, and a way to convert regular food into power, maybe even normally indigestible stuff like cellulose, so you can gain calories off grass or tree bark, or just the parts of food that you as a human often eat but can't process for calories. Indeed it's a good way to stay trim, if you by default converting excess calories into power storage, and might be necessary psychologically too, after all you don't actually need as many calories if you chop off a limb, 
nor if your body is staying warm from your excess atomic energy, but you might want to still eat big meals, even if just recreationally, or to maintain some feeling or semblance of what it's like to be human. Our person could also, outside of combat circumstances, just run mostly on batteries and maybe plug in occasionally, or at nighttime while sleeping, or even charge wirelessly. We also shouldn't rule out the reverse process of using organic materials for power, but instead having artificial means of providing power to organic cells. After all, you can make sugar and amino acids in the lab just fine, and arguably more power efficiently than sunlight and plants can. Having nanotech or other high-tech internal medical options for repairing the cyborg's remaining organic components is also on the table, and might be necessary if you got them walking around with atomic power supplies. An internal fission reactor is a lot more viable if you don't need as much shielding on the soldier and their squad mates because they've all got cancer repair mechanisms. Which raises the brief tangent on if a cyborg might also be genetically enhanced or pumped up on ultra-steroids. I tend to assume nobody who is fine with lopping off limbs or jamming microchips into their brain is going to be too touchy about genetic alteration. Drugs might be different but it isn't hard to imagine some 9 foot tall mass of machines and genetically engineered tissues jacked up on some cocktail of drugs that made steroids and cocaine seem safe and mild in comparison. They might be safe of course, we shouldn't assume performance enhancing drugs are inherently dangerous no matter what improvements we make. But it's also easy to imagine some drug-fueled berserker running around with a 50 caliber machine gun and armor, shield, and giant sword, all made of depleted uranium, graphene, or nuclear diamonds, or even high-density fissiles or radioisotopes. That person still needs some serious coolant for their organic components though. Incidentally, for today's purposes we will assume a cyborg must contain a significant amount of both machines and human flesh. I'm not sure a person with a digitally uploaded mind, uploaded into an android body, isn't a cyborg too, but even they wouldn't get a blank check for heat. That heat radiation issue really is the check and balance that allows a human and an exoskeleton to be a relative match for a cyborg or android or killbot, and not outperformed by whole orders of magnitude. Alternatively, the cyborg might have their organics limited to a brain and a jaw, and that could have well-insulated walls with their own coolant to allow the remainder of the body, all mechanical, to run about at temperatures that would fry organic materials, and that could be extended to other bits, eyes, spine, etc. Though probably just your nervous cord, I don't think you can plausibly keep your natural spine or much of your natural skeleton if you want to be running around flipping cars over and punching through walls. So our Myrmidon cyborg giant might have bones made of diamond and graphene and plutonium, all pumping out and storing power while his battle arm was covered in heat sinks and made of more batteries, and he's got a cloak that's also a high efficiency solar panel that's also bulletproof and carries around a railgun that can shoot through vehicles and buildings, as well as people. He can turtle up and under a shield and that armor and survive a tactical nuclear blast within 100 meters. You can drop him right out of an airlock and he'll survive, and can even parachute down from high altitudes with that cloak and survive landing at normal terminal velocity too thus allowing the classic one-fist-down superhero landing. What else is on the table? I think we'll skip mind augmentation in terms of intelligence today. If you can massively enhance intelligence in your whole army, then you are probably doing that with your entire civilization. But faster reaction speeds are on the table, and you can replace the longer nerves with something that transmits way faster. Being able to shut off pain receptors is handy, even at a day-to-day level, 
Being able to handle aches and pains by dampening them down is obviously valuable for maintaining alertness and energy levels. We all know how distracting a thorn in our toe or an itch in our side can be, or a cable or metal port sticking into your brain through your skin. Even more than being able to survive nasty injury and keep on fighting, those little aches and pains wear us down more. My unit used to run on coffee, cigarettes, and ibuprofen when we were deployed, and even just on field exercises, and for that matter they were pretty popular even in garrison, and that's generally been the norm in a lot of high-stress, weird-hour jobs like police or other first responders, hospitals, guard shifts, etc. I dare say you could almost as accurately represent the 20th century with an ashtray, coffee cup, and a bottle of Tylenol as the moon landings or computer chip or atomic bomb. So at a day-to-day level, anything that helps with stress, alertness, anxiety, or pain management, chemical or mechanical or electronic, is likely to be viewed as more important augmentation than super tough armor, and honestly if you want a tank, build an actual tank. Of course a cyborg isn't necessarily human-shaped either, we might dump a brain in a jar into a tank or fighter jet. So long as you had successfully come up with a liquid substance that circumvents the water density issue we discussed in dropships, you could now have a brain in a jar that's able to handle insane g-forces, not just hundreds but maybe even low thousands. That's probably all you need too, because while we talk about robots being able to handle far higher g-forces and having better reaction times, you don't need to be able to handle any more g's than your jet or spaceship is able to handle and has fuel for, no battleship is pulling off a thousand g acceleration or torn, and no tiny drone is carrying fuel and engines to allow several minutes of high g maneuvers. And you can achieve a lot more of that same effect without much cybernetics just by having a liquid air tank on someone's more conventional spacesuit or battle armor. Your typical cyborg army probably is not bothering with a lot of internal features that gear they could carry could do as well. Does your cyborg need an internal air tank rather than carrying one? Maybe. People don't really need much actual oxygen, around a kilogram a day, and you only pull about 5% of the oxygen out of the air you are inhaling, which is only about 20% oxygen itself, so you only get 1% of the molecules you breathe in, and a lot of the need to exhale is about purging carbon dioxide, so we might replace one lung with a smaller mechanical one that was better at pulling oxygen and had an oxygen tank below that was good for a few hours, or days, and a CO2 scrubber, or shrink both lungs and stick that system in both, or replace them entirely, or leave them be and simply expand our person a bit. Your mass and volume rise with the cube of your height if we keep you proportional to a normal human, and you can always go for the classic comic book Rob Liefeld style super wide chest and shoulders, and you've got so much extra space you don't even need to remove any of the original organs. You might have problems fitting through doorways, but that's someone else's problem. Which is handy because while you might find lots of people who are fine with getting rid of the organics or even enthusiastic about it, others might be doing it out of a sense of duty and want things simply added not removed. That process can be reversible then, you get decommissioned back into your original body with something along the lines of a full body tummy tuck. Or maybe we get a high tech equivalent of canopic jaws, cyborgs keep their original bits and pieces in storage vaults, freezers, or the equivalent of a brain in a jaws life support system just for everything but their brain. On a grimmer note, it makes me wonder what you would end up burying in a funeral given that you have all those valuable cybernetics to recycle and might even be pulling out various cloned and enhanced organs, like that super heart they grew and replaced yours with, which is still in good shape for a new user. 
Needless to say, backup hearts are another cyborg part we might see in regular use, in and out of militaries. How open folks are to various replacement organs might depend a lot on their culture and how much they use cybernetics in normal civilian life. Of course they need not be volunteers, your cyborg soldiers might be prisoners or random citizens grabbed up and involuntarily turned into one, and given lots of brainwashing, mind control chips, old fashioned indoctrination or drug addictions. I would assume anyone planning to use that option would want to be very confident it was effective and not easily removed. That's the first rule of warfare after all, never hand someone a gun unless you're sure which way they will point it, or in this case, don't turn someone into a living weapon unless you're confident they won't stab you. But those bots might be controlled remotely and your cyborg troop in this case might just have some mental augmentation to allow fast and intuitive control of those bots and awareness of their circumstances. Same for plugging them in as a pilot of a vehicle, or as a mechanic fixing a system with augmented reality and implants letting them rapidly diagnose and repair problems at a speed a NASCAR pit crew might envy. They know exactly where all their tools are, every repair component needed. They can see and sense in a greater range than a normal human, they can probably pull an augmented reality instruction video right over the object to see how to quickly fix something they never worked on before. They may be able to speak to machines more intuitively too. So too, your quartermaster might be augmented just to be able to keep track of where all the unit's gear is and what supplies are in route or getting used up at what rate. Or you might go the other way and have this as a minimal AI accessible to everyone in the unit real time. They know, down to the bullet, how much ammo they have left and with whom. They could, for instance, send a rapid mental query to the AI that could plot them the fastest, safest course to a fallen ally who had ammo left over, or a signal to an ally who had lots still to toss it to them, or the same for figuring out how to extract a wounded comrade, which in some cases might be extracting their armored brain jaw and physically hurling it out of a combat area or to a rescue drone who will grab it and hightail it out of the area. I imagine folks watching this who enjoy a good daydream or enjoy writing probably have some interesting stories in mind by now, and I hope you'll write or draw them, however, it's pretty clear how much of this will be genuinely attractive to modern militaries, for good or ill, and as we saw today, many of the less flashy options aren't too far over the horizon. So cyborg armies might see their premiere in the near future and become the mainstay in another couple generations. The war machines of the future might not just be piloted by our grandkids, they might be our grandkids. So next month is our show's ninth anniversary, and I was looking up benchmarks for the occasion and I realized we've been doing Sci-Fi Sundays on this show for around five years now. And also we've just passed the six-year mark of our partnership with Brilliant.org, today's sponsor and our longest-running sponsor for this show and so many other wonderful science and education channels too. They truly understand how important interactive visualization is to learning and I love the way they work that into so many of their math and science lessons, from basics of geometry like understanding how to calculate a surface area up to advanced topics like neural networks. On a strictly personal note, they've been a great partner to the show over the years and their dedication to top-notch interactive online learning is as impressive as it is effective, and I've quite a few testimonials from folks over the years about how Brilliant helped them or a loved one to better learn math, science, or computer science. 
Brilliant understands what works, interactive learning, fun, bite-sized bits, with thousands of lessons from basic to advanced concepts that you can learn at your own pace, at home or on the go, and to fit your needs, and that as always you can try for free for the first month. Education is a lifelong journey, one that's best worked on a little every day, and Brilliant is a great partner on that journey same as they've been a great partner to this show. Let them be your partner on your journey too. Try them out for free for a full 30 days by visiting Brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur or clicking on the link in the description, and the first 200 people will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. One of the cool things about doing this show is I've gotten to meet, virtually or otherwise, an awful lot of amazing sci-fi writers whose work this show's referenced or drawn on and even strike up friendships with some of them, David Brin and Dennis E. Taylor particularly come to mind, but I finally got to meet Alastair Reynolds, whose Revelation Space series and other works like House of Suns were such an influence on this show, and he was giving an awesome talk on the Fermi Paradox to the Interstellar Foundation at the time, and they have a great collection of interviews with a lot of other awesome sci-fi writers too, as well as with myself with Nick Sierra of the Golden Record Project over on their YouTube channel, so check them out, and check out Alastair Reynolds too, he is one of the greatest sci-fi authors of our time, and his discussion of cyborgs and transhumanism definitely influenced this episode. And speaking of episodes, next month's Sci-Fi Sunday will be coming out on this show's 9th anniversary where we first looked at megastructures, and in the next episode how they factored into the Fermi Paradox, and we will be commemorating the occasion with a look at fallen galactic empires, where we'll take some new and fresh looks of how we would detect the ruins of ancient catastrophes and conflicts, ruined Dyson swarms, and how widespread galactic conflict might limit what sort of megastructures get made, and maybe alter our view of the Fermi Paradox. But before then, we have a lot of episodes coming up, starting this Thursday with a look at how we might come up with all the air, water, and other volatiles those megastructures might need, as we look at comet mining. After that we'll look at the concept of de-evolution, and ask if fictional mutant degenerates like Morlocks and Chuds might be possible in our future. Then we'll close out the month with a livestream Q&A, Sunday, August 27th at 4pm Eastern Time, and then Thursday, August 31st, with a look at Neotorm Space Colonization. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content, at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week!